this podcast, including any related materials, such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. The podcast presenters' views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of their research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Dr. Alan Christensen is a naturopathic physician who's had personal experience with how difficult life can be when you're not healthy and how quickly the right information and actions can turn life around. He has a unique take on metabolism and how to reset it. So when we're crashing between meals, it's not for lack of energy, it's lack of access to it. Best of all, you'll hear about a way to break out of the dieting cycle using a 28-day metabolic reset approach that's been extensively tested with positive results. Dr. Alan Christensen is cracking the code on balancing appetite, energy, and weight, and shares it with you on this episode. Join us on this episode of The Practice to share the wealth of knowledge that Dr. Alan Christensen has to offer. Hi, it's Dr. Sarah Gottfried, and I'm here with one of my dearest friends, Ellen Christensen, Dr. Ellen Christensen. Hey there. So, Ellen, can you just introduce yourself and tell our listeners a bit about your background? I mean, he's my doctor. That's like an important thing to say. And you've got this incredible book that's coming out. We want to hear about that. And if you could just say the book, the title of the book. The Metabolism Reset Diet. Awesome. Can you talk a little bit about what you do? My name is Dr. Alan Christensen. I'm a naturopathic endocrinologist. And yeah, I stumbled across this journey um, instead of astrophysics by happenstance. It was, <laughs> it was almost astrophysics, but I was a clumsy kid. I had um, complications from cerebral palsy and seizures. And at an early age, I learned that when your body's not working right, things just suck. And people aren't receptive of you when you're not confident, you don't look a certain way, and then that double sucks, that compounds all of it. It does, yeah. And it, you know, you had a photo that you posted on Instagram recently that just kind of pierced my heart because you, um, you were struggling with your weight, I think you were struggling with your exercise, kind of your level of fitness. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because I feel like, you know, there's, there's the clinicians who have had no problems over the course of their life with metabolic inflexibility, with some of these challenges that we've had. And I feel like when you've experienced it yourself, it brings a whole different understanding to metabolism. Yeah. So can you talk about that? Yeah. Yeah. That photo was adolescence. And I came to realize before then, I think I was more deluded and I don't know, didn't really get the fact that there was a problem, but the social world became relevant and 
I guess for the first time, I saw me as others saw me. Mm. It wasn't just like my little shell and my books and my rocks and stuff. It was like there was another world out there and wow, and it wasn't working. And so, yeah, I, I struggled and I tried things. I tried to play, figured I'd just play football because... <laughs> That's the answer to everything. <laughs> <laughs> well, the guys who played football were popular and they were yeah. noticed and it was all good. So I'll sign up for football. And yeah. So the first day on the way out to practice to go play football, um, I, I blacked out. Mm. <laughs> that's, that's not a good start to your football career. No, so it ended then. But I, I, I went to different parts of the library away from the science geek books and the space geek books, and I found some health books. And that's why I just want to shout out to like authors. I mean, people's lives change because of stuff from books. Yes. And it's still great to have quick content or whatnot, but really to sit down and spend time and get into someone's head in a book, you can change your life. And so when I was 12, I had a couple of just huge realizations. And one was about how life sucks when you're not healthy, you know, how things were really bad. And the other one was that, on the other side of that, was that information could change that, and the things you did could change that. And then the other part was that this stuff didn't always come from the expected medical circles. Hmm. So it was a couple of big things. Yeah, your health is your quality of your life. And you don't always get the information you need from the mainstream circles. But when you get what does help, you can act upon that. And your whole experience of life can diametrically shift in brief periods of time from just getting the right data. This is huge. And, you know, I don't know many people on the planet who love science and love data the way that you do. <laughs> so, um, you know, that that means so much to me, especially getting the science right. And I, I feel like when it comes to weight, when it comes to really having the best health, to having metabolic flexibility, this is a place where mainstream medicine certainly failed me. And I imagine it also failed you. So I love that you are um, diving into the science, coming up with this original conceptual model about how we can become metabolically flexible. But I, I feel like this is also kind of one of those um, buzzwords. It's one of those, um, you know, almost like a soundbite that maybe has lost its crispness in terms of <laughs> definition. Yeah. So could we start with the definition? Well, thank you. So the way I think about that is, you know, your body has fuel and you've got stuff you use to make energy. And then you've got some daily need for energy. Now, those two things never sync up perfectly. And if they did, it would require us to be basically ingesting like a liquid solution 24 seven. Because we're always burning some fuel. Right. You know, and you have to drink it faster when you're walking and even faster when you're running. And, <laughs> and that doesn't happen. So we're storing fuel in various ways and then we're releasing it when we need it. And we all have some leeway to not eat constantly and not fall over dead. Right? Yes. But you have more leeway than I do. <laughs> <laughs> like a lot more leeway. <laughs> but we've come to expect that we've got to be very cautious and eat just the right amounts or else we gain a lot of weight. And we've also come to assume that if we restrict enough to lose weight, that we will be miserable and have a lot of cravings. We don't have to be miserable? No. So, <laughs> Oh, good. I, Yay! <laughs> you had a point and I had a point early in life in which we ate what we wanted to eat 
we played when we wanted to play and it worked out. You know, for me, it was somewhere around eight, nine, 10 where that changed. But before then, those things all... That's totally true. It was yeah. puberty that yeah. okay. changed things. For yeah. you? Or? Yeah. That's when I got chubby. Okay. But there was a time where... There was a time before that where <laughs> things were good. Yes. So that's how it's supposed to be. Yes. Yes. So I want to talk about the liver because I, I feel like it's that organ that everyone sort of says, ew. Um, but it's so crucial in terms of fat metabolism, in terms of metabolic flexibility, um, hormone metabolism, for sure. It's, it's almost the way that we process the world, right? So tell me a bit about how you think about the liver. The liver is really where we interact with the world around us in one thing. We talked about that as the gut, you know, but it's really not the gut because your, your gut is still outside your body. Mm -hmm. You know, you, you, you're not what you eat, you are what you assimilate. And you've not assimilated anything until it's come into your liver. <laughs> That's the first stop. And we've got these cupper cells, and they're the immune cells in the liver, and they're, they're sticking their head out the window to see if it's safe outside. You know, they're determining how the outside world is interacting with the inside world. Okay, I think my cupper cells are really upset. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I have a sense that they're not doing that well. I haven't even thought about them for like 25 years. <laughs> and even if there are bacterial compounds coming in from the gut lining, they decide whether that's a problem or not. And it's their determination of bile compounds that determine how well the cells repair in those tight junctions. So it's like all back and forth. And I, if I could, I would like to maybe pitch a 45-year-old woman who's maybe 25 pounds overweight and really struggling, like nothing seems to be working. Maybe she tried keto, maybe she tried intermittent fasting and yeah. like nothing seems to be working. And I feel like you have a solution for her. Yeah. So can we talk about that? Maybe the liver first and then my woman. Yeah. And so the 45-year-old woman, there's so much change going on. You know, there's, there's just living in the modern world, yeah. which is a setup for stress in like a million ways. Totally. Let's and, say she has two kids. Oh, geez. <laughs> and a dog, fortunately. And you know. a, a loving husband. <laughs> <laughs> well, thankfully. <laughs> well, so her body's undergoing tons of change. The ovaries had been making rather regular pulsatile amounts of hormone, mm -hmm. and now they're getting erratic. And everything in your body is a function of various chemicals. You've got fuel chemicals and regulating chemicals and building blocks, these, these micronutrients. But nothing is ever entering your body from food or from your glands exactly when it's needed. Yeah. So you've got this warehouse that's holding onto stuff and then converting things back and forth and making it all right. But this is also managing the stress hormones. Your liver's changing them from active states to passive states. And now we've got these big fluctuating amounts of estradiol. So the liver has to break that down and ideally make more estriol and harmless versions of that on the way out and not the more harmful byproducts. But then there's the fuel thing. You mentioned the 20 pounds. So that 20 pounds is occurring in three parts of the body. There's the subcutaneous fat, mm -hmm. which is below the skin. Mm -hmm. If I told you that we're the only non-aquatic mammals that have subcutaneous fat? No, you did not tell me that before. <laughs> Isn't that bizarre? So like a fat dog. See, these are the things that I learned from Dr. Alan Christensen. <laughs> so, so when a dog gets fat, there's their skin, but right below their skin is their bones, you know? 
but all the fat is is around it's the organs. It's true. Yeah, it's true. They have yeah. no subcutaneous fat. No land mammals have subcutaneous fat besides humans. Yeah, my dog is seven pounds overweight. I just want to confess that. <laughs> and it is. It's like all right here. Yeah. So then there's the visceral fat. Everyone's talked about the belly fat, how that's bad. But we don't hear about is the part that really matters. That's the organ fat. Yes. So the organ fat is in the pancreas and the liver primarily. And there's a group of compounds called adipokines. And these are probably the most toxic things our body produces. Mm -hmm. And honestly, every version of early mortality, brain aging, chronic disease, whatever you want to talk about going wrong, that's not getting an infection or getting hit by a truck, like every other version of things going wrong comes from these toxic intermediates. And it's that little bit of weight that forms in the organs that causes those. So liver fat. I feel like this is the elephant in the room because... We know that so many people have fat accumulation in their liver and pancreas and other places. And, you know, I, I, I think you introduced me to Lynn Patrick, mm-hmm. who taught me a lot about um, non-alcoholic fatty liver and how um, I think... Normal scores aren't normal. <laughs> yeah, normal scores. I mean, this is true with TSH. It's true with so many of the things that we try to track in our patients And she taught me that you want an ALT, for instance, less than 20 in women, Mm -hmm. less than 30 in men. So do you agree with those? And and how often do you see this in your patients? I mean, you look at some of the studies, and I think I've seen anywhere from 30 to 50% of populations in the U.S. Mm -hmm. have this accumulation of liver fat. Highest in Texas. I saw some data there where there's more um, xenobiotic exposure. So... Tell me about this. Like, how often do you see it? Do you look for liver fat or do you track ALT? How do you address this clinically? All the above. And it's it's super common. Um, we see that by the, by the blood scores. The tricky thing is that lab tests can rule things in or they can rule things out. Yes. You know, we were in uh, Yellowstone a couple summers ago and our son wanted to see bear, you know. And so you could go around in the woods and if you didn't run into a bear, it wouldn't be a safe logical conclusion to say there's no bear in the woods. Right. Right. Just because you didn't see one. Right. But if you saw some tracks or some droppings or an actual bear, you know for sure there's bear in the woods. Yes. So a lot of cases, rule ins are easy. Yes. But rule outs are hard. Yes. (laughs) I just assume there's bear. Always. (laughs) Well, the only rule out is a biopsy. And you don't do that for a screening test. No. With one exception. So if someone's going to donate liver tissue to a loved one. So big paper showed this, that healthy adults that were not overweight, that were not diabetic, that didn't have elevated liver enzymes, but they were all primed to donate liver tissue. They had to, as a last step, confirm liver biopsy to show they had no liver disease. And in those circumstances, 40.2% of them had fatty liver disease. Wow. So, so this is right rampant. in the middle of that range that I gave, well, but that 30% was, and 50%. But that but was those a, are like overweight. Right. This was in a very people. healthy population. So it's much higher than I think we've ever believed. Well, and there's a big continuum. There's a place where you're somewhere above 5% triglyceride buildup in the liver. We say this is actually fatty liver. But, you know, 4.5 isn't great. No, <laughs> no, that's and, not normal. And there's a condition which I wish there was a better name for it, but in medical literature, they call it overfat. Mm-hmm. And it's basically just the obese and the overweight, which are defined by height to weight, plus those to where they've got a good scale weight, but they have too little lean body mass. So when you put all those together, we call that the overfat. And that's somewhere around 80, 90% of the adult population. Wow. So I would argue 
everyone there has some level of excess accumulation. They're probably in that population. That's huge. And I feel like when I put on my hat of health span and longevity, I feel like that's such a huge factor because we know that lean body mass tracks with health span. Mm -hmm. We know that um, over the age of 40, we just tend to accumulate more fat and to lose our lean body mass. And so um, it just seems like we're heading in the direction of really having a problem with longevity. But let's get back to your book because you always talk about the problem so articulately like no one else that I know. And then you also have solutions, which um, we're all so hungry for. So is there anything more you want to say about the problem, about um, my 45-year-old patient or um, other women that you've kind of seen as you designed this protocol? Because I know a little bit about your process, and I know this, you know, you didn't, I imagine you tested this protocol, and because that's what you tend to do before you write a book. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about that. Well, the thing I'd like to still say about the woman is that this can get better. That's the exciting part. Good. There's hope. (laughs) There's hope. There's hope. Yay. We think about dieting as something we do as a deliberate step. And I think people have been conditioned to think that you live your life on a diet. Hmm. And it's counterproductive. You know, I would, I would argue that when things are off, it's not because you're eating poorly or the wrong foods or whatnot. Your body is not processing them right. And you can change it in a few weeks. And you can get it to where you don't have to live your life stuck in the whole diet cycle. That's, That's the exciting amazing. part. That's totally amazing. So tell me about the first step. Like, who... Who did you write this book for? Like, who are the the people who could benefit from it the most? And I'm speaking mostly to our practitioners that are listening because um, I can say, I can speak for myself as a practitioner. Like, I'm always so hungry for, so desperate for solutions that really work for my patients. And, you know, a lot of the solutions that are on the table don't work that well. So can you tell us a little bit about um, who did you Who's write this for? book for? Um, I'm not a good gambler, but for some reason, gambling metaphors come to mind. Oh, well, <laughs> we're filming in Vegas, so that makes a lot of sense. <laughs> so think about like a slot machine, right? And you got these things that line up. They, okay. they come in the same window, right? So it's about appetite, energy, and weight. And I think people have the expectation that you can't have all three of those. That if, you, if you're at the weight you should be, you're probably going to be hungry. You're mm-hmm. probably going to be tired. Yes. And if you, if you eat good food mostly, you know, you'll feel well and you'll control your appetite, but your weight not be, may not be where you want it. Right. So this is for someone to where those three things don't fall in the same window. Are you going to make them in the same window for you me? Just, you just roll the, <laughs> pull the lever and they can come back in the same window again. They can all be good. Okay. <laughs> I'll sign up for that. Okay. So... Can you give us, we don't have a lot of time, but sure. can you give us some of the highlights? Like what, what do you feel like is the most compelling part of the study that you did? And what did you find? Well, so exciting thing is that it really wasn't about what kind of fuel we're eating. You know, carbs, fats, ketones, your liver, they're all oxaloacetate to your liver. They're not anything different. So the trick is to have a lower amount of fuel and not cutting one out per se, but just less total. But the problem is that with a lot of common diets or approaches is that you can't just like drop your protein intake. So if protein intake goes too low, your liver loses the stuff that it needs to clear the junk out of it. So you've got to still get some protein, have some fuel, but not a whole ton of that. And then there's a lot of other good things we get from food that helps the liver clear out wastes. 
So part of this minimum protein that you're talking about is related to, I imagine, preserving muscle mass, mm -hmm. too. Yeah. So how do you guide people on that? The trick I thought a lot about was also focusing a lot on vegetable sources for protein. Yes. And a pitfall about a lot of non-vegetable sources is that they may take a lot of acid load to process. Yes. And we've, we've thought about the idea of yo-yo dieting and crash dieting as derogatory concepts. They are. But if you can have quick weight loss and sustain muscle mass, you'll do better longer term. Many can do better longer term. But if there is quick loss of fat you want to get rid of, and there's a big acid load, then we think about things like gallstones or gout precipitation. Yeah, we don't want that. Yeah, so I wanted more alkaline vegetable protein, lots of good quality plant foods, tons of healthy fibers. I'm a nut about the benefits of resistant starch. I wanted that yes. in there. And then preserving the metabolism by holding on to muscle mass. So that's the basic idea. That's awesome, totally awesome. So how long does it take, you said, inside of a few weeks? You can make uh, 28 days, 28 okay. days. That's fantastic. Yeah. So tell us a bit about the results that you found. Yeah. So that was the cool thing. What we saw is that even, even in the first week, there would often be a big shift in, in waste. And I talk about waste loss over weight loss. I like that. <laughs> I like that. That's really good. Um, height to waist ratios is one of the best predictors of longevity and overall health. Yes. And when the waist is too large, it's almost always liver mass. You know, it's not just a little thing here. It's all across. You've been inside a lot of people. You've seen that. I've it's seen a big it. thing. It's not pretty. <laughs> but that can reduce dramatically and have huge effects upon just the, the lifespan, the health span, the brain health, the energy, all of that. Awesome. So we live in this era of um, almost like dietary fanaticism, right? Like the, the rise of the keto diet carb phobia. And I have to say, when I post on Instagram, when I say something about, say, intermittent fasting or time-restricted feeding, what I love is when people post and say, actually, Dr. Alan Christensen says this. <laughs> and so that I consider that like a victory that someone is reading your posts and reading my posts and like trying to, you know, reconcile. So can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, kind of this this craze that we have with keto being the most searched diet term, your experience with the ketogenic diet and also with time-restricted feeding, like there's a time and a place for it. And I, I think it might be helpful for you to talk a little bit about your, what you've seen clinically and maybe any contraindications or situations where you don't think it's a good idea. Yeah, so keto, I can mention that first off quickly, and a lot of my focus has been hormones and thyroid hormones, and almost all the research from keto has come from uh, a few centers working on pediatric, pediatric epilepsy. Yes. And one of those is Barrows Neurologic in Phoenix. Uh, someone that was in a clinical nutrition program that I taught many years ago has been part of that, that group, and she's been active there and reported their findings since really long to me. Uh, the main complication they see is hypothyroidism. Yes. Uh, kids don't get a lot of thyroid disease. It's much more common you know, post-pregnancy or, or during menopause, but rather rare in kids. But when they're on ketogenic diets, it can happen as much as 20% of the time. It's they can high. develop hypothyroidism. Right. And there's some simple reasons why we insulin's not the bad guy. You know, if insulin's too low, the liver can't use thyroid hormones well, and the gland can get stressed out from that. So that's just a pitfall for those prone to thyroid disease. 
And then the other thought is that many think about when they're in ketosis, they're burning fat. It's actually the exact opposite. That's when your body can't burn fat. So fat has too many uses. Fat means like butter, olive oil, body fat, triglyceride. They're all different things. So to burn fat is like is lipolysis. You're breaking down these fat cells as far as stored fat. But burning fat for fuel, that's beta oxidation. And you can't you have to do beta oxidation to break down stored fat. You can't do beta oxidation well that when you're in ketosis, it's the opposite. So you need some glycogen to do beta oxidation. That's that's the pitfall. So there's a threshold, which then suggests that repleting your glycogen stores would actually help with that process, right? For, for burning stored body fat. And and you can, for sure, you can lose weight on a ketogenic diet. I couldn't. Okay, many cannot. It's po- <laughs> I'm saying it's possible. Yes, but men seem to do better. That's been my experience <laughs> clinically. But that's only if you're consuming a lot less food than your body needs, and you're probably gonna lose a lot of lean body mass. Yes. So there's waste loss and there's weight loss. You actually don't want weight loss unless there's waste loss because then you're losing your muscles and you are gonna have a yo-yo effect afterward. You know, I always tell my patients that are um, trying to lose weight that I care much more about their waist circumference than I do the number on the scale because it tells me about um, building lean body mass and losing some of that fat mass. So are there situations where you think a ketogenic diet is appropriate? Are you someone who is more a fan of carb cycling and, you know, kind of periodically repleting those glycogen stores? Like I remember if I go back to some of the texts that you and I have had, I remember <laughs> when um, my husband David was doing his centuries yep. and um, so he was cycling for a hundred miles and he was on a ketogenic diet mm-hmm. and he was feeling like a rock star because he loved the mental acuity and he also loved the fat loss but he was kind of hitting a wall in terms of endurance, which I think relates to the glycogen. Yeah. And you showed me the data. You like sent me the studies and you said, you know. So ketogenic diets are the best thing in the world for athletes when they're competing against me. <laughs> I want them to be. <laughs> because you want to win. <laughs> I highly recommend it for all my competitors. <laughs> yeah. So that's a good point. That, um, not the best thing for athletes. It's been very well studied. Yeah. There have been like 14 large studies to date, and the answers are very clear. You know, the body needs a lot of different fuel sources when you're training hard, and you're starving it of one of the main fuel sources. People can't perform quite as well when they miss that one type of fuel. And for, for long, slow intensity, it may not matter, but for hard efforts, it's, it's quite clear. Yeah. So let's talk about time-restricted feeding. Mm-hmm. Do you use it in your practice? Like, wh- what's the situation where you think... It's the best application. Well, so intermittent fasting is a broader category of which time-restricted feeding is a, is, mm-hmm. a, is a subhead. There's some interesting data about how that may affect uh, overall metabolic hormonal effects. Mm-hmm. And we think about the distinction between animal studies and human studies. And it's pretty fascinating because, of course, animal studies are rat studies. And in terms of metabolic activity, rats and humans are so different in terms of just like fuel, you know, calories burned per gram of body mass per minute. You know, yes. they're they're like powerhouses compared to us. You know, they could they could fast for two a, a day or so and die. I mean, quite literally, many of them can. They're just burning so much fuel so fast. So many things don't translate that well into humans. So 
The biggest study I've seen to date on time-restricted feeding was rather recent, and I should distinguish that that's where you're just taking windows of time in which you don't eat. And typically, they won't necessarily control or track a food intake. They'll just say only eat during this window. And the most interesting ones are talking about the open times of eating being early and the restriction being later. Yes. So that, that's, that's been interesting. But the biggest one I saw to date showed that those who did that for about three months ended up with about 3% of body weight loss. They actually, they didn't see surprisingly improvements in cardiometabolic risk markers in this one study. And they, they saw that the rate of weight loss was proportionate to the caloric deficit. So many people spontaneously eat less food when they have fewer windows of time to eat food. Mm -hmm. And for some, that may be a convenient rubric by which they fall onto a lower intake of food. Mm -hmm. And the pitfall about metabolism is always the muscle mass. And so muscle mass is muscle activation, you know, just some, some movement, and it doesn't take a ton. But it's also about total protein intake. But there may also be some relevance about, like, protein windows, and about protein how, windows. Yeah, like frequency of protein feeding throughout the day. Oh, tell me about that. That's well, there's emerging data saying how we're always putting specifically amino acids into and out of our muscles. Yes. So just like our liver is a depot for a lot of stuff, our muscles are too. Yes. And this is where we derive amino acids. And when, when, it's, when we're healthy, we put back what we take out. You know, we're, we're not burning through the savings. But it seems that there's windows of time in which if we're going too long without putting back in, we can't get caught up with what we've taken out. So there, there may be issues about loss that way and just depletion. On an extreme example, bodybuilders have seen this. So they do a lot of things that are not healthy, mm-hmm. but some of the things they do can be just useful models about what does it take to maintain and grow a healthy amount of reasonable lean body mass. So are these the bodybuilders who are who are supplementing with lysine and like using certain amino acids. Well, but also with just, just food frequency. Mm-hmm. So it may be a matter of not just like total, total in, protein intake, but also some facet about like protein timing, mm-hmm. like certain windows of it, where if it's too long of a window, there may be debits that cannot be recredited adequately. Mm-hmm. So if someone gets your book and follows it, and I imagine a lot of practitioners are going to be interested in doing that, what can they hope for? Like, what's going to happen in 28 days? Well, that's the cool thing. And that's the part that's it's so awesome for us to be doctors and not mechanics. You know, if, if someone brought a car to see Dr. Sarah and she swapped out the tires, that wouldn't help the paint job. No. <laughs> but as doctors, it's different. You know, you fix the tires and the paint job and the timing belt and the windshield. They take care of themselves, you know. So that's the thing is that in 28 days, your body can reach a state in which you line those things up. Energy is steadier. You can draw energy from stores. You can draw. We've all got plenty to get by for a long time. You know, yes. just a little bit could well, do you don't a lot have with much, that. But I, I have a lot. <laughs> but we've all got adequate access to that. So when we're crashing between meals, it's not for lack of energy. It's lack of access to it. Hmm. So we can regain that. We can see healthy amounts of waste loss. And what I encourage people, the 28-day cycle, think about it as a finite project. You know, you can do something for a little while, but don't think that I'm going to diet and starve forever. And in 28 days, you got better energy, better health. And some might say, that's good. And I'm down, you know, 10 pounds of fat or whatever. And I'd love to do more. That's cool. Wait for a while, at least a couple of weeks and then repeat. And you do maybe once you're good, maybe once a year. Some might do two or three the first year, mm-hmm. but that's all it takes. And you're back at a healthy weight, healthy level. And you can then maintain that. 
so I love this. I, I feel like one of the ways I've evolved as a clinician is that I think about pulsing. Mm -hmm. And this is a pulse, mm -hmm. which is, I'm going to get a little esoteric here, and I feel like I can do that with you. <laughs> You're restoring homeostasis, mm -hmm. which is so important. It's, I, I think it's kind of all about homeostasis, really. Yeah. And this is really, this is truly focused on the homeostatic mechanisms in the liver. Right? Mm -hmm. Did I get it? Completely. Okay. Yep. Good. <laughs> so anything else you want to share about your book, about your process with the book, about um, clinicians who are struggling with the patients that are in their practice, who are trying to lose their waste? Um, what else do you want to share? Yeah. So one, one good point I'd like to bring out is that there's, there's no wrong approach. If someone's done something else that's worked well, that's awesome. More, more power to you. If you've gotten it to where those three dials have lined up by wearing blue socks on Tuesday or stay, that, that's cool. Anything that works is good. The other thought is that I wanted this to be something that someone could do regardless of their, their food preferences or food ideations. You know, if they're vegan, paleo, AIP, the book is done to where they can do that however. That's they can fantastic. still stick, stick with that and I like that. be on the program and do things in ways that fit their conceptual models. And yeah. So this sounds like a totally original model to me, which is frankly what I expect from you because <laughs> you've done this before. And, and also as your patient, like I, I feel like you have a way of personalizing um, the science that you read and then applying it tailoring it to the individual. And I feel like you do that in your books too. I mean, you certainly do it one-on-one -on -one with your patients and you do it in your practice and, um, and you do it with your books. And so it's a way of, you know, getting those benefits that I have experienced with coming to see you as a patient. And I'm just, I can't wait to get my hands on this book. You know, just always a joy to hang out with you and, and always an honor. You know, you've done so much to touch so many people's lives and Honestly, I think that this is like the best calling we can do is try to make a difference and smooth the path a little bit for someone else. And you're doing that in spades. So thank kudos. you. Thank you. Well, let's let's hope that we relieve suffering for more people. Thank you, Ellen. <laughs> thank you for being with us for this episode of The Practice. You'll find extensive show notes, including links and supportive materials over at thepracticepodcast.tv. While you're there, explore other topics and use the Ask and Answer button to ask your burning questions and give your insights about the topic. After all, the future of medicine lies in dialogue, not dogma. Let's transform medicine together by connecting on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You'll find all the links at thepracticepodcast.tv. This podcast, including any related materials such as show notes, links, and supportive materials, is provided by Metagenics Institute, the educational arm of Metagenics, Inc., for general informational and educational purposes only. This podcast does not constitute medical advice and should not be considered a substitute for discussions between individuals and their healthcare providers. This podcast does not create a doctor-patient relationship and should not be considered a substitute for the independent professional judgment of any physician or healthcare professional regarding the appropriate course of action for a particular patient or individual. Metagenics does not make any guarantees regarding the accuracy, completeness, or usefulness of this podcast for any particular purpose. Listeners may use this podcast at their own risk and patients should not disregard or delay seeking advice from their healthcare providers based on the content of this podcast. 
Participation through the Ask and Answer button is optional, and no participant should feel obligated to provide personal details, including about any diagnosis, symptoms, or other health-related information. Neither Metagenics Institute nor any of its affiliates seek this information, and it is not necessary to participate in the dialogue regarding this podcast. The podcast presenter's views are entirely their own and do not represent the views of Metagenics Institute, Metagenics, or any of its research partners and collaborators, collectively referred to as affiliates. Metagenics Institute and its affiliates do not endorse or recommend any specific healthcare providers, products, or other items or services that may be discussed or mentioned in this podcast. Podcast participants may receive compensation from Metagenics Institute and or its affiliates. Listening to this podcast does not obligate you to purchase, use, recommend, or prescribe any Metagenics or Metagenics Institute products or services, including their educational materials. Metagenics products are not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Unless approved by Metagenics Institute, this podcast must be used only for personal, non-commercial purposes. This podcast has no independent economic value and is intended to comply with all applicable laws. It may be rescinded, revoked, or amended at any time without notice. Listeners who are patients should talk to their healthcare providers if they have any questions regarding the content discussed in this podcast. Listeners who are healthcare professionals may obtain more information by visiting metagenicsinstitute.com, calling 888 888- 690-8500 or emailing med ed at metagenicsinstitute.com.